Everything's going to be all right. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It's Friday, July 8th, 2016. This week is episode 421. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. I'm coming to you live from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. Our engineer is John. You gotta have faith. He's at the controls. And joining me back from Studio C in McKee's Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, everybody. Good, Good to be here. Good day, Cliff. This week's uh, new IAQA president, Indoor Air Quality Association president, John Lapoter, and the owner of IAQ Solutions in Orlando, Florida, is our guest. We look forward to a great show. But before we get started, we can't do the show without our sponsors, so let's stop and thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, we're a restoration and abatement contractor shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text them the answer via your computer. Congratulations. Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental, Dayton, Ohio, for the first correct answer to last week's IQ Radio Trivia Question. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, July 8, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IQ Radio Trivia Question. Radon is a dangerous indoor air pollutant that comes from the ground through rocky soil. Studies by the EPA predict 21,000 lung cancer deaths per year caused by radon. Radon is a radioactive gas whose decay particles cling to dust and can mutate lung tissue. The question is, what is the half-life 
of its most stable proton. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is John Lapotere. John is the owner of Indoor Air Quality Solutions in Orlando, Florida, along with his lovely wife, Lydia. He's also the new Indoor Air Quality Association president, just having taken that role on in uh, June, I guess it would be. John has also been a past guest. He's helped us with several shows, but um, never as the uh, as the leader of the IAQA. And looking forward to that. I, I t- kind of told him it's a triple thing. You know, we're we're bringing people on that were past members or past guests to kind of commemorate our upcoming anniversary here. Plus, you know, he's an IAQA president. Plus, he's a speaker at our conference, October twenty to twenty two. And uh, you know, I'm looking forward to talking to John a little bit here today. John and his lovely wife, Lydia, have owned and operated the Orlando, Florida-based air quality solutions, indoor air quality solutions, since 2001. He's a building envelope and indoor environmental consultant who specializes in building product failure investigations, forensic water intrusion investigations, and building envelope failure and guest investigations for commercial and residential structures. John and his wife Lydia also provide indoor environmental assessments and mold and odor investigations. He's presented at numerous professional organizations on spray polyurethane foam, building envelope failures, indoor environmental assessments, green buildings and IAQ, and much more. He's also volunteered with numerous industry committees for the American Industrial Hygiene Association, National Association of Home Builders, U.S. Green Building Council, American Council for Accredited Certification, and the National Air Duct Cleaners Association. That's uh, we got a little music for John. Big John. Big John. Big bad John. Big bad John. I like that one. Good one. Good one, Cliff. John, do we have you? You got me. <laughs> you are a big man, John. Uh, great to have you. Great to have you, John. So, was I correct? Was it June you became president of IAQA? Yeah, the, the end of June, first of July. And that was board meetings up in in St. Louis, and I guess um, everything is is going a little better with IAQA. You've uh, got a strategic plan in place, and then I'm sure you've got your own goals. Let's talk a little bit about the strategic plan for the organization first. They're a sponsor of the show. We've been happy to have them as a sponsor for years. Where are they headed? Well, uh, we've got a great strategic plan. We've uh, made some changes in the way that we do things. We've had the merger with ASHRAE. Um, but let me just start by reading the IAQA mission. The IAQA is dedicated to bringing practitioners together to prevent and solve indoor environmental problems for the benefit of customers and the public. Uh, the unique thing about the Indoor Air Quality Association is that we bring all practitioners together. We have uh, indoor environmental assessors, mold inspectors, home inspectors, laboratories, PhDs, building sciences, uh, engineers, architects, home builders. Uh, they all come together to the Indoor Air Quality Association to get relevant industry information. You could uh, basically call us the clearinghouse for uh, indoor environmental information. Uh, our strategic plan has five specific pillars of engagement. Uh, they begin with member engagement. Uh, we've restructured our chapter leadership, um, established a, a process of succession with our leaders. So 
instead of having an individual uh, chapter leader or director, we now have a board of four. They have the option of having a board of five with an ASHRAE liaison, but uh, primarily the structure is a board of four. And that provides each chapter a leadership succession, which will help ensure the success of that chapter should uh, the active director move on or retire we have a succession to keep it live. Uh, communication and connection is the second pillar of engagement. Uh, soon we'll have our own publication again that'll help us both communicate and connect as we generate uh, uh, advertising opportunities for our members. It's uh, important for us to not just get information for them, but for them to have a platform to provide information to other members. Uh, is that getting a print, John? Not yet. Uh, we're going to start with online, and we may eventually go to print. Uh, but it, it's important for us to have some way to both communicate, allow our members to communicate, and it's it's key, as with any organization, to have a method of generating revenue through ad sales. Mm -hmm. So those are on the near future for us. Uh, I know we went somewhat radio silent for a little while. So it's critical for us to have a method of communication and connecting with our, our members. It's very high on our list uh, moving forward. Uh, our third pillar of engagement uh, is education. Uh, we've worked very hard to standardize our core course classroom offerings, which will allow all of our members to receive the same quality training anywhere in the world, and I stress world, uh, that we offer training. And we are expanding our training in many, many different areas, so it was important for us to standardize that. <clears throat> We're also committed to increasing our training offerings uh, and, more importantly, committed to improving the attendance at our IAQA-approved training. Uh, we uh, plan to increase our marketing uh, as well as the areas that we market to help improve the attendance. We expanded our webinar series by using our unbelievably qualified members and presenters at our annual conference, and it has really, really taken off. Uh, we offer currently one a month, and we're looking to expand that. But they're relevant IAQA topics that we deliver directly to our members and non-members. Our members get a discount. But uh, education is critical for us, along with communication. For uh, our pillar number four, we have operational ex excellence. And we've narrowed down our IAQA committees uh, where we once had several committees. We've now tried to, to focus those uh, areas such as membership, chapters, education. And we want to gear a lot of what we do in connecting our members with the organization, giving our members a voice. And we also have to keep in mind that when we do these things, we, we do need to have an eye for revenue. We can't stay alive without it. Uh, I know it's always uh, a touchy situation, but it's going to be critical for us moving forward that we keep our eye on uh, revenue. Our fifth and final uh, pillar of engagement is collaboration. We've been working hard to establish MOUs, memorandums of understanding, with other uh, industry like-minded organizations, and we're going to continue to do that because the only way that we can be the clearinghouse for all of these uh, indoor environmental issues is by getting that information and vetting that information and making it available to our members. That means reaching out to 
the building science community, the home building community, the industrial hygiene community, and any other community so we can get that information and make it available where it otherwise would have been difficult to find or isolated into one industry. So it's important for us to create those MOUs moving forward. Cliff, let me let me let you have the next whack at this. Thanks. Uh, John, I, I think that um, every president of an organization should have, you know, one thing that really is their primary objective to accomplish during your tenure. Is it, do you have one? Uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm always a big advocate for education, and I think it's important that for the Indoor Air Quality Association to have a, a vast array of educational offerings for our members. Uh, we have core courses. We have Indoor Air Quality University. We have our conferences, and we have our webinars. Um, what I would like to see is for us to expand our training providers to include many other industry uh, uh, issues such as radon, asbestos, lead, just to name a few, um, OSHA, uh, we can offer that training. We can offer our members vetted, valued, qualified education providers that offer these courses. We simply need to reach out to them, vet them, and start steering our members to the IEQA-approved training providers. So I would say education for me is is probably the most important focus. Thank you. John, you, you mentioned financial, you know, an organization has to be financially stable or you, you, you can't help the members, obviously. And, and I was reading over the um, annual report and one of the things that really struck me was that uh, the IAQA's reserves, and, and I was on the board, I think it's probably been seven years uh, since I left. And I know we had, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe we had well over a million dollars in reserves at, at one point. And I noticed this year we're down to about $550,000. First, if my numbers are wrong, please correct me. Secondly, what happened? Well, I, I think, you know, the specific numbers are in the member report that was delivered. But uh, long story short, the recession happened. We weren't the only organization that had a recognized loss and reduction in, in our revenues. Uh, we've bounced back from that, but we did have a period of time when we were recognizing a reduction in training opportunities uh, and revenue. What we've done since then is balance that. We're offering more training. We're having membership growth. Uh, our renewals have st stabilized and increased. And with that, we're, we will enter next year with a, a balanced budget. So it's been difficult coming out of the recession, as with any organization. We had to regroup, reorganize. Uh, and the board is a strong board, and they work together to balance the budget and move forward. Okay. Uh, let me, let's talk a little more about the ASHRAE. Um, union. I've seen several words, and I, when I was looking at uh, Stephanie's, Stephanie Sears as the executive director, I was reviewing her uh, PowerPoints from the member meeting, which I unfortunately was not able to attend, and I noticed that she used the term affiliation with ASHRAE. What is the right term today for, for the relationship between ASHRAE and the IAQA? 
Well, it is affiliate. We are an affiliate of ASHRAE. We are a, an independent uh, organization, but we are an affiliate of ASHRAE. So there was a, a consolidation where IAQA became an affiliate of ASHRAE while maintaining our own brand, board of directors, budgets. Uh, we have our own tax filing, so we're, we're completely independent, but we are within ASHRAE's organizational structure. Okay, and, and let's let's go a step further. What have been, as you see it, the positives about that affiliation with ASHRAE? Well, we're recognizing growth because uh, our membership rosters remain separate, but there is a, a current member discount program in place. So members of either association are eligible to register for each other's conferences and membership at a discounted price. So, so that in itself is a benefit. Uh, all said, the ASHRAE experience has been great. Uh, we've gained uh, the large ASHRAE uh, experience and guidance. Uh, we've had support with our strategic plan and revising our bylaws, our chapter structure, our committee policies and procedures. Uh, they, they've been a, a great asset in management work. I think Tom Phoenix said it best when he said, uh, I think you might even said it on your program, the affiliation opens the door to alignment of ASHRAE and IAQA programs to create high-impact resources for building professionals around the globe. And have you seen any downside to the, to the ASHRAE um, affiliation? Uh, yes. I think the downside has, has been in perspective. Just a... Uh, a member perspective on both sides, ASHRAE and IQA. Uh, and I think that's simply based on a lack of understanding regarding the affiliation with ASHRAE. Um, many thought that ASHRAE was going to swallow us up. They didn't understand that we were a independent organization. Um, so I, I think the downside was simply that we may not have done an adequate job of communicating the affiliation with ASHRAE, and, and we still have work to do on that. But part of that goes back to we kind of lost our voice with our publication, and it made it a little more difficult to explain the process. So moving forward, we're doing everything we can with the chapter structure, the potential with the, the ASHRAE affiliate, to make sure that each chapter in each area makes the membership aware of the affiliation and that we can work together and collaborate on programs, but we're both independent of each other. How, how does that relationship work now? I've heard, you know, members and, and even some board members say, you know, we, we gave away too much to ASHRAE, too much control of the organization, et cetera. I mean, how does how does that work? What are your thoughts on that? Well, again, it's uh, a perception, um, lack of understanding, uh, probably from, again, the communication regarding the affiliation. Uh, my answer would be that the transition team did a great job putting two great organizations together. As a member of IQA, member of the board, I support the uh, affiliation decision and the work of the transition team. I think it's going to make IQA a better organization. And moving forward, we're only going to get better as we start integrating the IQA membership with the ASHRAE membership and the ASHRAE uh, committees. So I, I see it as nothing but uh, beneficial to both organizations. And the, the misunderstanding of members would simply be failure on our part to communicate effectively. It's a lot of people, 
and it's a lot to communicate. Um, but we, we definitely need to communicate that going forward. But the transition team did an outstanding job. And, you know, one other thing, and I, I really, first, I want to emphasize that I appreciate your willingness to answer tough questions. Um, you know, we, you know, your IAQA is a sponsor of IAQ Radio, but we're also journalists, and, and we like to make sure that, you know, we're, we're asking the tough questions, and I, I appreciate you coming on. You're, you're just new as president, and appreciate you being so open with us and, and not nixing any of these questions or, or avoiding them. And that I think that will help build uh, a better relationship with, with the membership as time goes on. One of the other complaints or concerns, I don't even say complaints, is that uh, IAQA can't sell booths at the conference anymore That because of the affiliation with ASHRAE and the AHR and AHR has pretty tough contract requirements and that we can't you know, sell our own booths. And I, as I recall, that was a big part of our income. And um, it seems like that could be something that uh, would be difficult to work around in the future. Any any thoughts on that? Well, uh, we didn't lose our, our ability to sell booths. We had a recognized reduction in our booth space. Um, that comes in part with the affiliation and our first year of the affiliation. AHR is planned years in advance, and we have to integrate with that. Uh, so the first year we had a reduced space. The second year we're going to have larger. The third year we're going to have larger space. So the opportunity is going to be there. Uh, we did have mixed reviews from the first one. Obviously, it wasn't the best-case scenario because it was our first year coming together with, with Ashray. Our hotel was separate from uh, the booths. Next year, it's all going to be in the same place, and we have an expanded booth space. Our members had exposure to a considerable increase in traffic. So while some of our, our members that purchased booths felt that they were sequestered to a small corner, um, they did that because they wanted to keep our people together. Uh, some of our people uh, are exhibitors at both AHR and IAQA, and they had their space elsewhere on the floor. But long story short, by and large, all of our, our participants had a tremendous increase in exposure. We'll see that again the next year. And as ASHRAE starts to understand the opportunities from our vendors at AHR, they're going to see a, an even greater increase in traffic. Going forward, not only do we have increased booth space at AHR, but we have opportunities to provide regional events. And at these regional events, we're going to be able to expand that ex exhibition space to people that may not have had an opportunity, even at the old IAQA. So we're, we're definitely interested in giving all of our members the opportunity to get FaceTime with members. And we're going to do that both at the AHR as we work to grow our footprint through, through the affiliation and through regional events. Okay. I, I, I guess it's also, it was, you know, it was kind of, sticker shock for some of them as well the cost of an ahr booth i think is a lot more than than what we used to charge for the iaqa convention is that accurate yeah it's it's very accurate but if you look at the exposure from the hundreds that would be at ours to the many thousands that are uh, ahr with a very large portion of them recognizing themselves as indoor air quality practitioners in ashray um, they now have a much larger well to dip in 
with AHR traffic. So um, you, you do have to pay a little more to get that access. But that access will prove to be very, very valuable to our members, and that's part of the benefit of the affiliation. You mentioned that a significant portion of ASHRAE members, um, I, I don't know, recall the exact wording, but that they're somehow involved with indoor air quality. Do you, do you know a number on, on that? I mean, how many of them consider themselves to be involved with indoor air quality-related work? No, I, I don't know the specific number. I, I do know that if my go-to personal here, Stephanie Sears, <laughs> I could simply defer to Stephanie to throw a stat right out to you from our last conference. She she has that information as any good executive director would. So we know that there were a tremendous number of people at the last AHR that showed appreciation for our booth, our uh, participants, and are specifically interested in indoor air quality. Okay. Well, maybe we can get that from Steph for, for Cliff's uh, blog here. Cliff, anything on IAQA before we, we move on? Nope, not at all. Okay. Um, John, before I move on to the next topic, is there anything else that you would like to add with respect to the IAQA? If you're not a member, become a member. We're, <laughs> we're dedicated to providing cutting-edge indoor environmental information and training to all of our members. So if you're not a member, become a member. Yeah, and I took advantage of the uh, the discount in the ASHRAE membership too, as a as an IAQA member. That was something that was positive from my from my perspective. That's for sure. And um, they've got a, a nice program, ASHRAE. But anyway, let's let's move on to another topic that I know both of us are interested in. You being in Orlando, Florida, I do training around the country. Not Florida anymore, unfortunately. Um, Florida passed a mold regulation. And um, from your perspective, how is that Florida mold regulation working? You know, your experience as a consultant uh, working in Florida, has it been a good thing, a bad thing, a mixed thing? Uh, it's been a mixed bag, but uh, let, let's start by, by saying in, in the beginning, the state had very lofty goals. Uh, they wanted to raise the bar. Uh, they wanted to try and exclude um, fly-by-night inspectors and mold remediators. Um, these Southern and, and coastal communities get hit pretty hard by storms, and we get even, hit even harder in the aftermath by people that will take deposits and, and remove building material and, and then leave. Um, so the state licensing law was an attempt at raising the bar and setting the standard and providing a way for uh, Florida citizens to keep track. So the, the state would keep score on complaints through the licensing, and citizens can reference that state uh, website and find out if, if their uh, licensed assessor or remediator had any issues. Uh, it sounded good at the time. Um, and in, in some cases, we still have unlicensed contractors that are being penalized. And in some cases, they're, they're being prosecuted. Uh, we had trainers that were vetted, training providers that had actual knowledge of, of mold assessment and mold remediation providing great training. Uh, that, that brings us today. Um, today we have uh, a, a what they call a dec statement, a, a declaratory statement on what is direct supervision. Uh, and the question was answered by the state. And the, the official position on direct supervision means, for example, uh, if you're if you say you're being directly supervised by, let's call him Montana Joe, as you perform mold remediation in Tampa. You're covered. 
so long as Montana Joe agrees that he's directly supervising from Montana when the state calls. Hmm. And that eliminates the need for training, certification, and insurance. All you have to do is have Montana Joe agree that he's directly supervising. And I, I, I stress that he can be anywhere. As long as he tells the state that he's directly supervising, you're okay. So um, one mold, one licensed mold contractor can have multiple people working under him, and he doesn't have to ever show up on the job site. He just has to say he's supervising them. In, in my confirmation conversation with Richard Rick Morrison, the director executive director of the Florida Mold-Related Services, I asked Rick directly. Uh, my family <clears throat> currently has three state licenses for mold assessment. And I asked him, are you telling me we essentially only need one? And he said that is correct as long as any one of us agrees to directly supervise the other. Hmm. I asked him, can that direct supervisor be outside of the state of Florida and still provide direct supervision? And his answer was yes. I then asked him, so what you're telling me is the state can have one mold, uh, licensed mold assessor and one licensed mold remediator, and they can directly supervise everybody else within the state. And he said yes. Hmm. And is this... No. Go ahead. Is this because of a, um, like a glitch in the regulatory language? Or, I mean, it doesn't sound like something they intended. Um, why do you think this has happened? If you can answer, I don't know. I mean, it's that's a tough question. Well, it, it, it's really not that hard for us to find the, the inevitable loophole. And it, laws are very difficult, just like tax laws. These guys are going to find a loophole. They're going to find a method to not need to uh, pay the licensing fee, get the training, get the insurance for whatever reason. There will always be loopholes. So the, the statement in the statute that is the loophole is in the mold assessor uh, definition. It, it reads as follows. A mold assessor means any person who performs or directly supervises a mold assessment. That one little statement nullified our law, in my opinion. So and the, the loophole is is the directly supervised statement, and they have the same now, the, the same statement for contractors. No, oh, and, and that, therein lies the problem. the The mold remediation definition, the mold remediator definition, does not contain that directly supervised. Hmm. However, the state is unilaterally allowing the statement to include both mold assessors and mold remediators. So. In a sense, there's two loopholes, one allowed by the state and one created by the state and the directly supervised. Hmm. So initially, early on, in the early years, directly supervised uh, meant on-site supervision. And we fought to have on-site added to the language, and of course, it, it never made it. Um, I, I, let me also say that I don't think this kills the licensing law for any of us for any reason. It creates a loophole for people that are always going to look for a loophole. Now, obviously, the three licensed individuals in my family, we're not going to give up our license. We're going to maintain our continued education. We're going to use our license as state-vetted professionals. We have insurance. We have training. We have continued education. 
we have experience, and we have background checks. If you're going to hire someone in any state with a licensing law, the state license shows those things. Background check, education, continuing education for relicensing, and insurance. So you've, meet, you've met the minimum standard. That's a good thing. So if nothing else, our state licensing law has provided the consumer with at least the information to look for the license. And you need to verify that license at the Florida DVDR so you can make sure that that license number belongs to that individual. Because the other issue that we have in the state is that people are printing business cards with other people's license number on it. You cannot do that unless you're the license holder. You can be directly supervised by someone else and put on your card directly supervised by license, you know, 800, but you can't say I'm license 800. Okay. So consumers need to be a little bit diligent with that. That's tough for a consumer to understand, but let's let's break on that. And uh, we're going to stop for our halftime, thank our sponsors. We'll be back for the second half of our interview with John Lapoter. We're talking now, we started with IAQA, we got into the Florida mold regulation, and then we're going to talk a little bit about indoor environmental inspections and remediation. So uh, come, hang in there for 90 seconds. We'll be right back. And thanks to our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com and, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview with John Lapoter. Cliff, take it away. Thanks, Joe. Uh, John, in a recent mold inspection assessment presentation you gave, you seemed rather concerned about the overuse and or misuse 
of spore trap sampling. Uh, can you just comment on what your concerns are? Well, uh, th this is probably the, the dark side of our industry. Uh, we have a standard of practice for mold assessment. It's the ASTM D7338. Um, unfortunately, when I provide my presentations, very, very few uh, are even aware of this standard of practice. This is the standard of practice that governs mold assessments internationally. This is the standard of practice for the business, the primary business that these individuals are in. Yet, they're not aware of it, and they do truly feel in their heart of hearts that if they enter a property and collect a five-minute grab sample for air samples, for, for mold spores, that they are providing a mold assessment. It meets no definition of any mold assessment anywhere. It goes in direct opposition of any legitimate industry organization. It is the perfect definition of overselling and under-delivering. To take it a step further, and, and I talk about this in my uh, presentation, if you take it to the next level and you provide a mold assessment with air, air uh, spore traps for mold spores, and you call it an indoor air quality assessment, you are truly overselling and under-delivering. And in most of these cases, the consumer simply gets a laboratory report. They get no summary of findings. They typically don't get so much as a photo. They simply deliver the expanded fungal report to the consumer. That is dangerous. It is overselling and under-delivering, and it does not meet any definition of any mold assessment. To, to clarify, let me just give you the CDC, Center for Disease Control's current position statement. It says that spore traps are a snapshot and not reliable, representative, or worth the cost. They further state any claim based solely on air sample results is inherently suspect. They further state there is no reason to respond to questionable testing by conducting more of it. One of the huge problems that we have with these guys that sample for the purpose of investigation is that they have to go back and recharge the consumer to figure out what's going on. And the majority of the time, they still don't conduct a visual inspection. They simply collect more samples. If those come out high or low, they still don't know what's going on. They still have to return, and in many cases, they end up with Lydia and myself, and we have to actually go to the property, charging them again, and determine what is actually going on at the property with a true visual inspection, an inspection in accordance with the industry standard, the ASTM D7338. So my issue with spore traps is they're a crutch. They're not a part of the assessment. They can be useful if they're answering a question, but you first have to ask the question. You have to formulate the hypothesis. Walking into the home, setting up a pump, and pulling a sample should be outlawed for the purpose of investigation because it is really throwing our industry into the dark side. You know, Joe, you may have a follow-up. I, I do. I, I do. Um, and, John, I want to clarify, these are licensed Florida mold assessors you see doing this. That is correct. So what? where is the, 
where's where's the short circuit at? Why aren't these folks learning? In, I, I believe they have to have 24 hours of, of education. They have to pass an exam. During that education and exam process, are, are they just not learning this, or are they just ignoring it once they get out in the field? Well, uh, what I find is most don't understand or are aware of the standard that regulates their industry. They've entered the industry because it was easy. Uh, in their mind, um, they needed very little uh, information. They needed very little investment. Uh, for a long time, labs were selling the entry-level package for roughly 700 bucks, and away you went. You conducted mold inspections that then became uh, indoor air quality inspections because you could charge a little bit more. They felt these licensed assessors felt that they could protect themselves with elaborate disclaimers that weren't upfront disclaimers. They're disclaimers that are delivered after the fact in their reports. And they run the gamut from we're not going to move anything, we're not going to look under anything, we're not responsible for anything outside of what we report in the lab report. These disclaimers are unbelievable, but they're not disclosed in the beginning. So a licensed mold assessor that takes an air sample for mold delivers the lab report without an interpretation and without a report and tries to hide behind that massive report disclaimer is still liable because they never disclosed that in the beginning. Now, the industry that has that disclosure in the beginning are the home inspectors where they can exclude themselves from the liability of not finding anything because they get that contract signed in the beginning. The mold reports that I peer review, that disclaimer is only in the report. So the, the consumer felt that they were getting a legitimate indoor uh, air quality assessment, and it turns out they just got lab samples. And we all know that the laboratory report says that the interpretation of that lab report is the responsibility of the client. Some of these licensed mold assessors that are doing this believe that the client is the consumer. The consumer is not the lab's client. The guy that collected the sample is. And, and on the training was, side, I would have to say that some of the best trainers in Florida aren't training in Florida anymore, and we've been replaced by state-approved trainers that are literally training that sampling for the purpose of an investigation is legitimate. Hmm. Unfortunate. I think that's part of the problem with the licensing program there. I mean, you, you, you know, and again, we're combining two topics, the, the licensing program and indoor environmental inspection, mold ins inspection, whatever you want to call it. Now, I think I've heard this complaint from just about every indoor environmental professional I know out there that they, and contractors because the contractors get pretty upset when a client you know, calls them and, and says, I need you to come and fix my mold problem, and they hand them a report. There's just a lab uh, a lab report, and there's no, you know, cause and origin for them to look at. So how how do we fix this? I mean, well, let me, let me go back. I used to see this more with, and I'm not calling out home inspectors because I think they do great things and they're good people, and some of them, have gone on to be some of the best indoor air quality people I know. But it seems like some groups prey on them and, and try and get them to add this as an add-on service. Is that what you're seeing? 
Well, uh, let me let me start by saying that a home inspector will typically have a greater knowledge of a building than many entry level mold inspectors. Agree. Uh, you can take that to the next level. So a, a builder uh, or a contractor would have maybe the next level, but a lot of contractors and home builders become home inspectors. So you got to give it to the home inspector for knowing what's going on in a home beyond that, which some of these new mold assessors have. Agreed. So I think they're getting thrown into the, the deep end, but the problem with the home inspection industry is that the add-on mold spore trap provides no legitimate service to anyone. And that's what they need to understand. If you're going to provide a mold assessment, then you need to do it in accordance with the standard of practice. You can't just take an air sample from mold spores, then call it an air quality sample, and hand the homeowner a lab report. That is where the home inspectors fall prey to bad workmanship. That's where they get their complaints. They use their disclaimer to get out of it, and they refer them to someone. With, they literally have sent me reports saying, we recommend that you talk to a qualified professional. What did they just pay for? What did the consumer just pay for? So oh that's where these mold inspectors and uh, let's just call them samplers. That's where the samplers fall prey. The minute they recommend that the client of theirs contact a qualified professional, they're labeling themselves as unqualified. And when it comes to a court of law, that's just low-hanging fruit. Now, I'm, let me go back a step. You have done many spore traps, I assume, in your in your career, and, and at times I'm sure have found them helpful. Is that accurate? Um, no. No? Okay. <laughs> um You've not done many, or, or you've never found, or you didn't find them helpful. Both, okay. and I'll tell you how I came to this uh, conclusion. So, okay. uh, early on, um, I was a home builder that left home building and went to the restoration industry, um, and I was uh, evaluating uh, the extended damage and large losses. And then I went back to being a home builder, but I did learn the value of IICRC training and the value of that training for my warranty department. Uh, when I was building homes for uh, uh, national production buildings. I also knew that there was a new phenomenon hitting the industry uh, via mold inspectors and home inspectors, which was the spore trap sample in the homes that I was building prior to occupancy. They would take a look at the house. They might find a few things here and there, and then they would take this air sample at the end. And that air sample would theoretically determine the indoor air quality of the home that I just built. And when you would talk to the uh, sampler, they had no clue what it meant. And what I realized is that I could have a new construction house with an accumulation of settled spores from either the construction of that home or the construction of the home surrounding it, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the indoor environment that we just completed. It's an unoccupied home. In some cases, it's open and exposed uh, at the end to construction around it. And even more so, once people drag all of their personal belongings into the home that have been stored God only knows where, you can again have false positives or elevations of mold spores. These guys often simply compare indoor to outdoor. Look, if we're going to fall prey to that theory, then the entire state of Pennsylvania in the wintertime would need to be evacuated south to Florida because your indoor is going to be lower than, or your outdoor is going to be lower than your indoor. So I, I just don't believe at all. I, I, 
agree completely with the industry knowledge that spore traps are not reproducible, uh, unreliable, and not representative of the indoor environment. So what what would you suggest in lieu of doing some type of, I mean, you know, we're dealing with oftentimes, um, sometimes hidden even, or difficult to find moisture issues. Um, what would you suggest in lieu of a spore trap? And obviously, you know, I think most of our listeners will do a thorough visual inspection. They'll use their senses. They will use maybe some thermography, etc. Are you are you doing a lot of particle counting? Are you doing um, dust sampling? Are you doing anything along those lines that would be helpful to um, evaluate the conditions in a home? Uh, we definitely do particle counts, but sticking to, to just a mold assessment. Um, I'm often asked when I give my presentation on the 7338, what about hidden mold? What about those hidden reservoirs of mold? You'll need to take an air sample in the middle of the room to find that hidden reservoir of mold. And the answer to that is no. If it's a hidden reservoir of mold, if it's inside a wall, if it's hidden, it's never going to get to the spore trap in the middle of that room. It's hidden. And if it's not hidden and it's visible, you still don't need the spore trap. So for me, it's the visual inspection. Now, granted, I, I have a, a good knowledge of building construction. And I start all of my inspections on the outside. And I look for areas of building envelope failure, uh, rodent access, insect access. I, I look for ants. I, I do a lot on the outside to look for the failure. And then I come to the inside and determine whether or not that failure is impacting the interior. Uh, I also have a good knowledge of building product failure, how they fail, and where they go. Uh, because of the unique construction in Florida, we have block exterior walls. We have foil interior insulation, which is just a, a, a thin sheet of foil on three-quarter inch furring strips and then the drywall. Unless the drywall is wet, thermal imaging on the interior of a Florida block home is pointless. The majority of the water that's coming in from a window or a building envelope failure is going to be behind the five foil, behind the foil insulation, and it will never show up on the drywall. So it's often missed. So Surface moisture measurements, thermal imaging, probing the drywall won't find it. But if you pull the carpet back, you'll see water stain tack strip. So you've got to pull carpet. You've got to look. You've got to move things. Look for the expansion and contraction in the baseboards. That's, that's how we conduct an inspection. We literally look below every window in the house, every plumbing wet wall in the house, every suspect or potential roofing transition in the house. We look. And we find what would never be found with sampling, the sampling approach. The presentation that I sent you, every case study that you see in that presentation was a job that we went to after the home was sampled by someone else and declared to either not have a pro mold problem or have a mold problem that turned out to be a false positive, all via sampling. Cliff, let me turn it over to you for a second. I, I, I tend to agree with him. You know, I, I think that yeah, you know, the sampling, you know, because it's not reproducible, and I just don't understand how it got as far as it got, Joe. I mean, in terms of the industry and, uh, you know, its penetration within it. And, you know, you had people like, uh, you know, Phil Morey, and I mean, it was just unbelievable the number of samples 
that those guys would take in buildings and then make interpretations and I don't know. Now, let me let me elaborate a little bit on the the uselessness of spore traps in, in my opinion for investigation because people often say, well, isn't it important for you to know what kind of mold there is so you can determine where it's coming from? So l- let's just look at that. So some of the most common molds are going to be Aspergillus penicillium cladosporum. So penicillium contains 223 species, uh, Aspergillus 185. There's over 500 cladosporium species. That's you know, well over 900 species that could originate from individual, separate, and distinct areas of growth. Or they could just be the accumulation of mold that's commonly occurring from virtually anywhere. The point being, the, the genus identification, the aha moment of Aspen uh, or Clado doesn't mean that you found anything because you would then have to speciate. So you'd have to find out which one of the 900 species were there and then find the actual point of growth and find out if that's the same species. But even then, it's not conclusive because that species could have been from somewhere else and settled out in the house. The, the amount of time and money that it would take to actually legitimize the sampling to, to give you any legitimate answer is ridiculous. You're far better off, and this is what we stress, you're far better off in your first visit to leave the sampling pump and the thermal imager in your truck and then go in and physically look. We're not a, I'm not an emergency responder. So the thermal imaging camera could determine the extent of the water loss. I'm not going to need. That, that's a great tool to determine the extent of the moisture during an emergency. But when I get there, it could be a week after they notice the water coming in because they've made several calls and other people have come in. It could be completely dry when I get there. So I've got to look at the residual signs of the water loss. Look for the building envelope failure and the cause and origin because the extent of the damage doesn't matter if I can't tell you where it's coming from. So where it comes from is most critical. Stop that. Until that stops, I'm not going to give you the extent of the damage because as long as it's open, it's going to continue to spread. So we fix the problem. We give them specific details and specifications to correct. They hire a contractor that follows our scope of work, gets corrected. Then we go in and determine the extent of the interior damage and get rid of it. And I can tell you, by and large, it's going to be about a third of what the mold remediation side of the world would have expected it to be, because it's typically pretty small and isolated. John, you, you mentioned you do use a particle counter. Can you elaborate on that? We, uh, we've been using a particle counter and collecting particle counts for, for many, many years. And what we do, and again, we're typically not going in just for a mold assessment. We're typically going in to provide an indoor environmental and building envelope assessment for a property. People think that their home may or may not be impacting them negatively, and we're simply going to help include or exclude the home as a contributor. It could be their cat. It could be their 24 cats. It could be anything. <laughs> we start by uh, we give them a little uh, cheat sheet to follow to prep the home before we go in. Eliminate your candles, eliminate your um, air fresheners, don't clean the house before we come in, keep the windows and doors shut, and turn your air conditioning off. We consider that the home at rest. We measure it for airborne particulates, temperature, humidity, VOCs, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and formaldehyde. We also measure for combustion gas if there are any gas appliances. Then we turn the air handler back on and we remeasure all of those after it's been running for about 30 to 45 minutes. But what that tells us is whether or not 
the air conditioning system is contributing to an elevation of airborne particulates. And what we found is that the location of an air handler can greatly impact the amount of airborne particulate within a home. So the second worst place would be in an attic because an unsealed from the showroom floor air handler cabinet will pull in attic debris and hot humid air. It will introduce that to the house and it does have the ability to increase the airborne particulate, temperature and humidity. The, the worst place is the garage where you have the potential for uh, fuels, uh, carbon monoxide and everything else stored in the garage from entering the home. What we know is that by simply using foil tape and sealing the air handles, that we can conduct a third measurement, waiting another 30 minutes, 45 minutes, remeasure all of those parameters, and we can have a substantial measurable decrease in the amount of airborne particulates in the air. Some of the other things that we've learned from this is that you can have very low airborne particulates, very low and what the industry would, the sampling industry would consider acceptable levels of mold spores with the air conditioning on and off. But a visual inspection of the interior of a Florida air handler cabinet can find the air handler cabinet itself fully impacted with cladosporin. And we know that while cladosporin doesn't produce mycotoxins, it does produce rather pungent MVOCs, microbial volatile organic compounds. And those MVOCs have actually made people sick. But you're not going to find those with a, a spore trap sample. We won't even find those with a particle counter because that cladosporum likes it in that air handler where it's nice and cold and wet. They're not going to leave that happy land to go find something else. So the particle counter tells us quite a bit. And even more so, the particle counter, when we believe we found a point of air infiltration from wall cavities, uh, or the location of the air handler, we can make that on-site correction and measure that immediate improvement on the indoor environment. I love a particle count. I suspect that if you weren't in Florida, um, you would add a third location to your worst places for um, mechanical systems, and that would be a crawl space. But do you get any crawl space work down there? Yeah, we actually, uh, I should have said that, that that is actually the third worst place. Uh, number three on our list would be crawl spaces and basements, and we actually have many, many of those in Florida. Uh, most people don't realize how many basements we have and how many crawl spaces, and they don't realize that the basements in Florida in very early homes were all the location of the fuel oil heat, and the uh, air handler simply, in many cases, replaces the uh, fuel oil heat with uh, forced air, and we oftentimes use the same duct system. Um, so, yes, uh Basement and crawl space air handlers are, are very, very bad. And when they condense, they tend to support uh, rodent activity much more than the attics. But the attics, their condensation, the excessive condensation because of the temperature differential, definitely support uh, a haven for rodent activity. I just realized we're, we're really getting low on time. Cliff, I've got two more questions I'd really like to get to if John can stick around. Yeah, go you, ahead. Do you have one? Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, the first one, John, is... Um, let's stay with the, the remediation side of things first and investigation. What is a proper post-remediation verification? Let's say you've got a mold project. Um, and and this, the follow-up to that, I'll give it to you now, is why can't the industry agree on what is a proper 
post-remediation verification? Well, I think, you know, my opinion is that, uh, well, ASTM is currently working on that. Uh, and it's a very tough committee. Uh, and I think that there are a lot of different ways to look at post-remediation verification. Um, I set my own standards, and, and they have changed throughout the years. Uh, if I were to give numerical standards, and, and I do on some projects, in the raw count for airborne mold spores, I want single digits. And if asked if I get one or two stacky, uh, will I make them reclean it? No. Absolutely not. And the reason for that is because I know in taking random uh, samples for, for mold spores that the minute the reconstruction begins and drywall is reintroduced to that uber unmaintainable clean area, I'm going to have even more stacky than those two that I successfully removed in the spore trap. So when people say, what about that one spore? I got it. It's in the spore <laughs> trap. It's gone. We're good. More so, is coming with the drywall. Now, you, you are using spore traps on your PRV or just some PRVs? Most PRVs, we use the particle counter to determine low levels of airborne particulates and a clean, dust-free environment and the successful removal of the identified mold damage building material. Okay. My uh, protocols state that I will corroborate my opinion that the contained environment will have no negative impact on the uncontained environment when the containment barriers are removed. And I use the air sample to corroborate that. It's not the end-all, be-all, and NIOSH simply states that it should not be used for that. So we don't hang our hat on that. We don't give numerical standards. We simply say clean, dust-free, visible damage area successfully removed, and that the contained area will not have a negative impact on the uncontained and that the spore trap was collected to corroborate my opinion of clean. And I guess most importantly, the moisture issue was fixed as well. Absolutely. And we, we typically do that ahead of time. Although when we come in to give um, a peer review or a second opinion, we often find that mold remediation was conducted without a cause and origin identified, and ob obviously the, the source never corrected. So that's just resetting the clock for a second coming. Of mold remediation. Final question, John. Other than if there's anything you'd like to add, of course, we'd, we'd like to have you do that. What is an up-and-coming indoor environmental quality issue, issue our listeners should learn more about? That's great. I, I love this question. So, And this is going to be from what, what I typically say when I, I write anything, from the cheap seats. Um, obviously, number one on the list is the ASTM D7338. This industry needs to really get that standard out. We need to stress it. We need to emphasize it. And more people need to use it. Uh, the next would be um, outdoor air supply. And we'll just call it the ventilation rate cat fight. Like I, I don't have a dog in this cat fight. Um, I'm not going to try and... Uh, argue with the PhDs one way or the other. But what I will say is that a, as an indoor environmental consultant, I'm extremely happy that the ventilation rate is being discussed. My take on the ventilation rate is that it needs to be adjusted on the building based on the building's occupancy. That's as far as I'm going to go, but I will tell you outdoor air supply as it's being installed in homes and buildings 
needs to be on everybody's radar. We find it unfiltered, wide open, uh, without dampers. Outdoor air supply needs to be on every indoor environmental and mold assessor's radar. Next would be tightly sealed homes and their impact on indoor air quality. Again, tied to the ventilation. Won't beat that. Uh, and then my, my final thought, which is probably going to get everybody throwing rocks at me, is green building and the myths involved in the product VOC labeling. Uh, you know, we carry a handheld PID, and we measure the VOC off-gassing of building products. Um, we always say we're, we're kind of the hammer meets the, the nail kind of guys. If you say it's no VOC, just crack the lid. You know, we'll confirm or deny. <laughs> we're okay with that. But uh, I still think that no or low VOC building products benefit the applicator and installer and not the end user. But, again, those are some of the areas that I think people should look at more when it comes to the indoor environment. Well, that's that's much appreciated, John. We we certainly appreciate you joining us, and and you know, uh, well, before we do sign off, is there anything you'd like to add? Anything we missed that you'd like to add, or just anything in general that you think might help listeners? Um, the the only thing that I would like to add is, uh, if you're not a member of the Indoor Air Quality Association, please become a member. Uh, we value you, and we want to offer you benefits and help you become successful. Well, that's uh, much appreciated, John, and I, I'm looking forward to your time as president here. I, uh, I look forward to having you back again, and we'll see you in October. And you're not alone on uh, some of your opinions, and I'm sure, you know, especially the low VOC thing, we had Dr. Siegel on, Jeff Siegel. I think he agrees wholeheartedly on that. And then um, as far as the sport trap and the uh, utility of spore traps um, I, I think we're going to probably get some feedback on that and um, certainly we're willing to present anyone that you know wants to present the other side we're certainly willing to do that as well and then I know we'll be talking about that topic a lot in October uh, October 20 to 22 John will be one of the speakers at our conference up here at Seven Springs so uh, we'll be continuing the conversation, and in fact, we'll be doing some live research there as well. We, we do that every year and look forward to having as many listeners as possible join us for that. Cliff, anything you'd like to add before we uh, sign off? Well, I'm glad it was a great show today. All right. Well, John. My, hand, my hand's tired. A lot of notes. <laughs> going to be a long blog. He, talk, he talks fast. He may live in Florida, but he talks like he's from New York. <laughs> Oklahoma, yeah, believe well, it or not. <laughs> Hard to believe, but he's an Oklahoma. He's an Okie, aren't you? I, I am from a very small town in Oklahoma called Ringwood, Oklahoma. Graduating class of 16 others and myself. Nice. Very small town. I thought my boys were small. They had like 40. <laughs> John, thanks yeah. for joining us. We really appreciate you coming on and being a great sport and um, answering any question we were willing to throw at you. So we appreciate it. I love this. I can't thank you guys enough. It's, it's always an honor to be on your show. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. Okay. This is Joe Hughes saying thanks to our guest, John Lapoter, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Another good one in the archives, Cliff. Um, John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Uh, next Friday, we're going to have another flashback. That Those have gone really well, by the way. The one with Janet Stout was 
exceptional. And then uh, two weeks from today, we'll have Dr. Mark Hernandez on. And uh, we've got a great lineup coming here for the summer. Even though things slow down elsewhere, we'll keep on plugging ahead and uh, revving things up as much as possible. So come back next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 